0: Good morning, Memphis. I am so happy to be back with you this beautiful, beautiful Saturday morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Y'all, can you believe this year is already flying by? Here we are at the end of February 2021, I can't believe it. Um, But you know, a lot is also still very much the same. We're faced with the pressing social issues that our dual pandemics, both coronavirus and racism, have kept in the forefront of our national attention. And while there's a lot of information out there, you know, really diagnosing these problems, today I wanted to talk more about solutions and kind of where we might be headed um, for our future. So to talk more about social justice and the law, I have joining me today, attorney Ashley Satterfield. Ashley Satterfield is the chief legal and administrative officer for the Reeves Law Firm. Ashley Hills from Washington, DC. Um, she has a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from Dartmouth College and a Juris Doctorate from the University of Chicago Law School. At Dartmouth, she was a Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellow and was awarded the Mecklen Prize for Innovative Research and the Woodbury Memorial Law Prize. At the University of Chicago Law School, she was a member of the Exoneration Project, a pro bono legal clinic focused on cases involving those wrongfully convicted. Upon graduation, she began her legal career in the government affairs office of Microsoft before moving to Memphis, Tennessee, to join a defense firm. She then spent several years as a trial attorney for a Fortune 100 company. Welcome, Ashley Satterfield. How are you? Good good afternoon. I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing very well. Also, I'm so excited to have you um, for a few different reasons. Obviously, because of the topic that we'll be talking about, very timely, but also because I feel like we have some connections because I know you had that sociology undergrad degree, and I'm a sociologist. So I always love to um, have, you know, love fellow sociologists on the show. <laughs> it's exciting. Yes. And also, I was really excited to hear that you attended Dartmouth. I actually interviewed at Dartmouth. So I could have been at Dartmouth right now, instead of at the University of Memphis. Uh, but you know,
1: I think being in a city. <laughs> has <laughs> a little bit more to do here in Memphis than there is in, in Hanover. I'll let you know that. Yes, absolutely. You know, I had to like take a flight there and then get on a bus and then. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Probably a Dartmouth coach from uh, Manchester. Oh, I missed that. I haven't done that in in so long. Get on that bus, pull you right up on Main Street. Yes, right
0: there. You know, and it was, you know, that's just the way it is. You just get on the bus, the charter bus, you know, that. and you're there. I was offered, you know, they said, oh, you can um, you know, rent a car. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea.
1: <laughs> that's depending on what time of year you were going.
0: Exactly. I was like, you know what? I think, you know, the charter bus is probably going to be a better choice for me.
1: It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful town. I, I was, I, I look back, I'm glad that I, I picked Dartmouth because I was like, well, what's the likelihood that I will ever live in New Hampshire? Like ever. Um, I mean, obviously it was a great school, but, and I, and I love my time there. Um, mm-hmm. but th- there's a lot more to do in Memphis, I can tell you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And then I also know that you, you grew up in DC, Right. Yes. And in, in the actual city, I have to point that out because some people say DC and they don't mean it. I mean, actually DC. Right.
0: Yes. Yes. And so are you, is that where you were born and raised in DC? Born and raised. Born oh and my raised. goodness. So also it's very difficult to find people who are born and raised <laughs> in DC, right? So many people are transplants.
1: Yeah. There's, there's not, there's not that many of us. So I, I hold that with a, a badge of pride. <laughs> As
0: you Should, as you should. Yes, I did my um, PhD work at the University of Maryland. So not in D.C., right? So let's get that right. (laughs) Uh, But yes, but in, um, you know, in College Park. Yes, but I always just made it easier
1: shorthand for people and just said like in the D.C. area. (laughs) Okay. No, I'm I'm super, one of my best friends growing up, her mom, uh, she was a dean at, at University of Maryland for a long, a long time. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. but we do have a lot of, a lot of little connections.
0: Yes. A lot of connections. I, I will say this. I definitely miss DC so much. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I didn't love it while I was there because I was, you know, this broke PhD student. Um, but in retrospect, you know, I really miss it. <laughs> Talk about being in a city, right? Like yeah. really miss being there. So yes, so all right, we're talking about this really big topic today thinking about social justice and the law and so timely. and I know that you're kind of interested in your commitment to social justice really started early in life. So I'd love it if you just kind of told us more about that.
1: So I think I think how my commitment to social justice sort of began, it, it started one based in, in my family right? So I come from a long line of attorneys. Mm. Um, Three out of my four grandparents are attorneys. Um, Let me see. I have an uncle who's a judge. My uncle is a former chief judge of the D.C. Superior Court. Uh, My great-grandfather was an attorney uh, who went to Harvard Law School and then was a constitutional law professor and dean at Howard Law School for like 40 years. Mm. Um, Like I said, out of out of my four grandparents, the three that were attorneys, they all um, worked in, in some aspect of civil rights, social justice, and 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 my great grandfather as well. So I think sort of just as growing up in that kind of environment, mm-hmm. um, certainly had an impact on, on what I cared about, how I viewed the world and, and what I thought was important. And then I would also say, you know, as a, I guess in middle school, I, I went from public school, my local public school, to private school, and I went to Sidwell Friends, you know, fairly prestigious private school where the Obama girls went, Chelsea mm-hmm. Clinton went, and as a as a minority, as a young Black child, it was a very interesting experience, um, mm-hmm. and it's really where I feel like I saw the world differently. I think it's one, it's when I really realized, oh, you're a black girl. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's where I read the books that I think changed my life. that got me thinking about these issues and, and really got me thinking about wanting to make a difference. And so I think that is sort of where it started. And then it has obviously grown since then. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and so I know you obviously come from a very long line of attorneys and people who are you know involved in the law. So did you always know you were going to kind of follow in you know that <laughs> family lineage?
1: I tried really hard not to actually. <laughs> um, I mean, so you know, I uh, I was really into theater mm-hmm. and and so even on the social justice aspect, right? So in, in high school it was president of the Black Student Union, and we did this Black Student History production every year and we would write it. So the first year I remember we worked on it was about police brutality. Mm-hmm. And this is back in 99, 2000, and we wrote this whole play essentially with issues. Um, so I was really into theater, and even in college I was theater minor, um, and really, really thought about the ways in which I could use the arts to tell stories and and promote social justice and make change. And I, and I still strongly believe in that, um, but that's really what I wanted to do. And then um, somehow it just pulled me in. I think I actually remember, I think I actually had a conversation with my grandfather and he was like, I love this art stuff that you're doing, it's great. But like, maybe you should go to law school so that you just have some options. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And so I just, I went with it and you know, it's worked out. <laughs>
0: Yes, so practical, right? Like, I, I totally hear that from a relative, like, um, right. law, you know? <laughs> something more tangible <laughs> than this right. theater stuff,
1: right? Right. Because I, I had a whole plan. I was going to go, Yale used to have, I don't know if they still have it. I think they had a, there was a theater management program, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do like, a Black theater, and, and yeah, and then, you know. The reality side. And it was like, yep, you know, maybe I should have something to fall back on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Have something to fall back on
1: law, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then what when when, when they suck you in and you start taking out student loans? And it's like, oh, this, this has got to be the real thing.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love how you were like, you know, I wasn't quite sure what, you know, what I wanted to do. And so you got that undergrad degree in um, sociology, which I think is so hilarious because that is kind of like the, I don't know what I want to do. <laughs>
1: So <laughs> I'm interested degree. in lots of things.
0: <laughs> right, yes, yes. Very. I had a very similar experience where was like, I don't really know what I wanna do, but I had all these questions about what was happening in the world, right? And sociology really gave me that language to start to diagnose some of these inequalities that I was seeing um, and really to understand like why
1: things operate the way they do in our society that is spot on I mean I think that like when I was going through high school and trying to figure out what's next it was I was very much uh I don't want to say obsessed but just intrigued with why why things are the way they are and the systems and the meaning of it and and how we got here and how we fix it and what that and what that looks like um and then when I found out oh there's this whole area that I can study just that Mm -hmm. um it's like perfect
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you did. You know. I think you you made the best choice in going on and getting that law degree and being able to actually what I think of is really impact some of these policies and systems that we have in place that are causing the many injustices and inequalities that we see in society.
1: Absolutely. I mean that that's that's the goal, and I will say it. It's taken, um, even with my interest in social justice issues and my passion for it. It it has taken a while for me to get to a place in my career where I feel like I can even really focus on those things and and give it the attention uh, that I would like.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you say it in that way because I know you have that passion for social justice. Obviously, started very young, um, but now you said you're finally at a place in your career where you feel like you can actually Focus more on that. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: I think for me, well, you know, it's interesting. I I have found one just being a black woman attorney, right? Mm -hmm. That that is an act of, of I don't know if you say social justice or or what, but that that in and of itself is political, right? And Mm -hmm. and my experiences as a black woman attorney navigating different corporate environments Mm -hmm. um, and what that means and what that looks like. So so there's a huge issue in in the legal field of pipeline, Mm -hmm. pipeline issue of Black women attorneys, if you're talking about firms uh, trying to advance and just the the glass ceiling, all that stuff that we know. And and just simply being and trying to find ways to be successful and trying to understand uh, how to navigate in that world as an other. takes quite a bit of energy, right? Mm-hmm. And some of that energy is devoted to um having the right conversations or or, or trying to assimilate in a way that makes me the most successful. Um, while also trying to not loosen to my identity, speak speak to things that I find are problematic. Um, and, and in a very limited way too, because right, how how you behave in the workplace is tied to ultimately your ability to care for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I need a job. I need to get paid, and right. um, trying to find this, th- trying to work through that, and find the space um, to show up as myself, my full self, every day, mm-hmm. and commit to my work, whatever that may be, whatever kind of work I'm doing. Um, it's quite a bit of bit of energy, and I feel like where I am in my career now is I've learned enough to navigate that in a way, and to be in a place to work work for a place now Um, that I truly believe I get to show up as myself Mm -hmm. 100% and I can go and say, I really care about this issue. What can we do about it? Or, you know, let's think about finding a lawsuit to address this inequality. I I can do that here. And that's a beautiful space to be in. Mm -hmm. But I fully understand that there are people who can, who may choose to pursue a career early on, whether it's be a public defender or work Mm -hmm. for you know work for EJI with Brian Stevenson or something like that. Um, and, and that's sort of their immediate road. And some of us choose other other ways to get there. Um, but it, it is a it is a privilege. It is a um, it's a different space to be in when you when you are in a place in your career where you can actually really devote your your interest and your time to the things that you care about outside of just you know being and navigating and trying to survive hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that is like you really are blessed to be in that kind of space of magic, you know, where you're able to merge kind of everything that you feel passionate about, um, you know, in this space. Right. Which I think is awesome, because so so much of our lives, I think, in general, we're kind of um, compartmentalizing um, certain aspects of ourselves, especially if we are, like you said, kind of those outsiders within our field. So trying to play that role of, you know, being able to be successful within kind of the rules of the game as they currently stand, while also still trying to find that space to push forward, right, to see the changes that we want to see. And we hope, you know, to embody within that discipline, that field or, you know, and then of course, society overall, I mean, I think speaking to your point, I was really, um, shocked to see the stat that only 5% of attorneys are African American in the US. And, you know, that really blew my mind. Um, Obviously, law is not kind of is not my field. So, you know, I'm just not aware of like this reality. But I was thinking in terms of like, who is you know, creating laws and policies or, you know, obviously who um, are trying these different cases, right? What does that mean when only 5% of attorneys are African-American? You know, what are the effects of that for, you know, for justice, for our society at large?
1: Oh, I mean, that's major. I just read something I want to say yesterday um, in relation to um, President Biden being, being able to appoint new judges on, on the federal circuit mm-hmm. and, and Supreme Court and whatnot. I think there are currently four African American women yeah. on the Court of Appeals. That that is insane. Right? That that is an absurdity. Um and it's even more absurd that we don't even think about it. Right. Right. And so and so what you know what does that mean? I was uh in a conference a few years ago one of the, the one of the uh, there's a CLE that the Memphis Bar Association is sponsoring Uh, coming up on the crown act having to do with you know uh wearing your natural hair and and laws that prohibit discrimination on that basis well a couple years ago i was at a conference that the eeoc held and there was a case out of the fifth circuit that really has spawned a lot of the the crown act where a woman was terminated because she had locks in her hair Mm -hmm. um and and She filed a racial discrimination lawsuit, and the outcome was that the court had said that it wasn't racial discrimination. Some, uh, you know, based on her hair, anyone could wear locks, whatever. And so the attorneys who had defended the case and had won were speaking, and they were talking. And I was probably one of the only black women in the room, Mm -hmm. and they were just talking about how, you know, it wasn't a strong case and why. And I remember sitting there; I was just so I was infuriated because I was thinking like. One, I mean, whether or not they truly got it and, and they were just were doing their jobs and saying, making the arguments they need to make is one thing, but it, it felt so isolating to sit in this room and talk about something that is so obvious to me, that is so, you know, offensive, right, that this woman would have to change her hair to fit into a standard of what is, what is professional, which is completely racialized. Mm-hmm. And then to be told what you, what you know to be true is not true based on interpretations and understandings of law and facts that, that are also racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, it matters. Um, and, and and that's just, you know, that's that's an easy topic, right? It's black hair, black hair is complex and, and obvious in some ways, but it, it permeates everything. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think you were so spot on there. We don't think about, you know how much of our everyday experiences are racialized and we see that, you know, in these laws and policies, right? That racialization, and we see the the effects of it. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, it's kind of under the radar because it's not their reality, right? And so they don't have to care about it in that way. Um, just like, you know, to the point earlier, when we think about how many women are judges how many Black women are judges, right? And then what are the effects on that um, for, again, for our justice system and for what we think of as important or relevant? Um, and so it really matters who's who's in these positions of power, um, whether it's attorneys, judges, or just at the, diff- the various levels of the legal system at large.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, and, and so it has so much to do with, knowledge of our perceptions and not, you know, I mean, I I think back in law school, often we would discuss certain cases. Um, and my a lot of my non-Black classmates, some of their perceptions of facts or who was responsible or why, you know, would be so stunning to me. Um, uh, I remember in crim law, we did like a case study and there was these two, two different um, cases we looked at. One involved a young African American boy, maybe like nine or ten years old, who had he maybe killed somebody, and he had really bad, uh, you know, upbringing. He was nine or ten when this happened, right? So mm-hmm. tragic life, lots of abuse, whatever. And then there was a, a the other case that it was a, a teenage white male who had maybe in, engaged in sexual molestation of another child based on his own sexual molestation. And, but there were, you know, a lot of different facts, and we talked. We talked about who deserved what punishment and what, and, and you know, the perceptions and 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 the allotment of, of punishment were very much skewed based on on the race of, of the the students in the class, and it was it was shocking. I mean, you see that in in legal opinions all the time. I mean, Gets was a case, you know, out of New York and on the subway where this this white man. Shot up a bunch of black guys on on the subway. That I think they maybe attempted to rob him at first, but then um, he had gone above and beyond. But the basis for him getting off was that his fear, right, was mm-hmm. sufficient, and that's always the case. The fear of the other, be it black or, or whatever that other is, um, tends to be a sufficient reason based on your racialized perception to commit certain acts um, in one direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's legitimized in legal precedent. And then we make it more and more real each time we legitimize it and we don't ever unpack what that means. Absolutely. That is,
0: and and we see that, you know, continuing, of course, today, you know, whose fear of whom, right? And like you said, what, whose fear gets legitimized, whose actions also get legitimized in relation um, to that fear. Um, And we see that happening, particularly now, um, you know, in police brutality cases, in cases of police killings of Black men and Black women in particular, and you know, from 2020 continuing to now, we see this pressure for some sort of legislative change to address these issues that have been ongoing since forever.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, we talk even outside of the police killings of, of unarmed, black, brown, whatever people, it's the capital. You know, we talk, talk about being from DC. I tell people I wouldn't have been able to get on the red line to get to the Capitol. Right. <laughs> they, would, they would have got me long before then. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the stories coming out of that are that, you know, people are getting sent home. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you know, well, what is that? Mm-hmm. Who 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 is dangerous? Why, you know, how is this person considered less less of a threat than the people that we lock up and lock up for? years, because they can't pay. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to continue this conversation um, about how we can actually and expand this conversation to how we can actually use the law um, for purposes of social justice. Um, You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with attorney Ashley Satterfield, and we're talking about social justice and the law. And before the break, you know, we're having a conversation about really the racialization of crime and the racialization of even on the flip side of that, of innocence as well, right? So who do we presume to be innocent? Who do we presume to be guilty um, or to already be criminal, right? Um, and so therefore we evaluate those actions according to those preconceived notions. And so I'm wondering, you know, how can we actually use the law to advance social justice and kind of get out of some of these preconceived racialized assumptions that we have? So that,
1: you know, that's a huge question <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wish I, I wish I had the answer. Um, there's, there's, I think there's, there's one, there's lots of ways to use the law to advance social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that is, is one being incredibly intentional, um, and creative and strategic, right? So, um, looking at you know whatever issue it is that that we want to address, um, be it police brutality or or voting rights, right? Like mm-hmm. that that is a huge issue that is going to continue um as we see efforts across the country now to suppress the vote even even more. Mm-hmm. Um is strat I mean strategizing on on the right case, how to get the right case, how to build the right case um, to get the law that you want. I mean, you can't guarantee it, but um, being intentional about bringing lawsuits um, that can affect change and what those lawsuits look like. What do we want to change, and how do we how do we use the precedent that exists and push it further, or how do we change that precedent? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that Charles Hamilton Houston quote that people say a lot but you know talks about the the job of a, a lawyer the social engineer right is, is is the ways in which we file these lawsuits bring these actions to engineer the society that is looks like how we want it to look like mm-hmm.
0: absolutely are there any um particular Lawsuits or cases that are maybe on the horizon that we should be really paying attention to that might have these kind of impacts um, for creating, you know, creating the society
1: a more just society. Um, so there's so I was reading a, a brief that was filed by uh, Howard University Law School actually this week, M's brief, um, and I think this part of, so, so at the Reeves law firm, we do primarily personal injury, but we also uh, do employment litigation, right? Um, I, I, for most of my career, I have uh, practiced employment discrimination. And, and this brief that was filed talks about the use of uh, the N word. I don't, I don't know what, what I'm allowed to say on the podcast, but, um, uh, and it talks about, you know, whether or not that is sufficient to establish a hostile work environment. And it, and it, it goes into several other um, topics, right? Mm-hmm. But that, so that is uh, a really interesting brief if anyone wants to read it, but it, it's significant, right? Because employment discrimination, for example, mm-hmm. uh, one of the biggest barriers is it can be really hard to prove Right. right, that you were discriminated against, despite everything that you know is happening, that we know to be discrimination. How that, how that is is screened through the laws that exist and what that means and, and what is bad enough mm-hmm. um, can be a very difficult barrier to meet. Right, so there, there is some circuit split and in, in, uh, as to whether or not, if you know, someone uses that word against you in the workplace, is that sufficiently hostile? -hmm. Um, And it goes into sort of some other areas like the use of the word boy or or different things like that. What is sufficiently hostile? Um, That that uh, case and that brief I think is really important. I'm very interested to see what the final outcome is, but it's it's significant, right? Because we talk about employment. We talked about employment earlier in terms of you know being an other and what that means. the the experiences of people in the workplace of discrimination and the bars they have to meet to establish that they were actually discriminated against or retaliated against and, and what that the the lens which, the lens through which that is viewed is important in terms of outcomes for those people and this outcomes in terms of your ability your, your mental health in in the work environment but creating a, a culture where people can um can be their their complete selves um, but also advance right and, and create wealth for themselves, create stability for their families, a barrier to, to entry to lots of different things. Um, so that is one that doesn't, that I don't know has gotten as much attention, um, but I think like on the employment side, there's a lot that can be done um, through lawsuits and, and following those kinds of things that we should, we should be watching because that's directly tied to people's ability to provide for themselves, um, to gain wealth and, and to build careers and, and all those things. Um, and to work in spaces where they're not discriminated against. If we, The history of discrimination, one, people were not even allowed to hold certain positions for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one thing that I've been watching and I, I tend to be very passionate about, um, generally because of the work that I do. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think people aren't really aware of how, um, how difficult it can be to prove uh, workplace discrimination. So like you were saying, you know, how high kind of those standards of evidence are to actually prove that it was discrimination. And then, you know, to prove that it was racial discrimination, for example. Um, And so I think this is a very important case and something that you said that really stuck out to me, you know, is um, someone's use of derogatory language, you know, sufficiently hostile, right? So even there's this kind of idea that there is a level of um, disrespect or
1: discrimination that's okay. Right, right. I mean, so one of the headings in the brief that was filed is Basically, any use of the word "nigger," including a single use in the workplace, creates an actionable hostile work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's significant, right? Because that one use, it, I shouldn't have to experience more than that, right? Mm-hmm. And and that, and that is not where the law is. And, and and you know, I think a lot of people think, "Oh, well, you you call me this, obviously." but it's it's not obvious. And that also speaks to what we think about racism. I I think it it really speaks to what um, people who have not experienced racism, who do not experience racism regularly, um, understand it to be that just a little is okay. I mean, that's how a lot of people justify Trump, right? Just a a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, he may be this, but he's also this. So so racism is is not a non-negotiable for you.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And that's embedded into our laws. And I think that's,
0: I think that's really the point right there, which is that it's already, you know, racism is embedded in our laws. And there is this expectation that, you know, we should be okay with, you know, it's just a little bit of racism, right? Right. It's just a little bit, like, is that not okay to you, right? And so I think, you know, thinking about this case or this brief that's been filed, like thinking about, you know, really following it and seeing, you know, where it, you know, where it goes and how this might change, you know, our workplace environment.
1: And I will, I will say the, the case in case anyone wants to look it out, it's, it's at the Supreme Court. It's Collier versus Dallas County Hospital District, um, just in case someone wants to look it up.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Now thinking about the workplace as well, I know, um, something really important that I'm sure is, you know, on your radar is the Marshall plan for moms. Um, so thinking about again, workplace, thinking about employment, but also thinking obviously about moms. And so what we know is that, um, women have lost the majority of jobs during this, you know, during the pandemic. So, um, I see some stats that say since February of last year, women have lost over 5 million net jobs, and so that accounts for nearly 54% of overall net job losses since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. And we know that moms in particular are um, extremely hard hit. Um, So I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit more about the Marshall Plan for Moms.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something that I I, I do feel very strongly about um, finding solutions for. Um because the, the pandemic in particular has has had devastating effects on on women and the ability of moms to to survive and, and thrive. Mm-hmm. Um the Marshall Plan for moms is a proposal basically that would offer um Systemic support for moms uh, on a monthly basis, at least, um, I believe, in the form of a twenty-four hundred dollar check. I'm not sure if that's the exact number, um, to aid in their ability to survive and thrive and maintain, and maintain, um, not just during this pandemic, uh, ideally going beyond that, but at least during the, this time frame. Uh, and to basically pay moms for their the labor that they are not currently being paid for. Mm-hmm. Um they that, that is a part of the the labor force, the workforce that, that is ignored, not recognized, um, and that they should be compensated for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so important because we in our society we devalue Women's work in general, uh, but then mom's work—you know—more specifically as well, and of course, with the pandemic, we've it's really brought to light how much moms are doing, <laughs> right. um, and how important it is not only for individual families, but again for our society as a whole as well.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and I and I, I think we can go go further. I mean, I think I think something that is even more comprehensive. I, I think about the stress. Um, and the health outcomes right that comes from taking on 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 so much uh if you are continuing to work either in in person or remote and, or working at home and taking on the family responsibilities um the stress the the, the lack of sleep the, the fatigue the, the burnout that everyone is experiencing and then the multiply it times 100 and then we talk about real health outcomes and then we talk also about the fact that that um out of all the moms moms of color um so suffering the most. And then we also talk about, um, and this this is a personal investment in this, right? is the health issues, um, autoimmune disorders. So I have lupus, right? Mm-hmm. Typically is a disease that impacts women of color the most. Triggered uh, even more so by stress, fatigue, all these other things. And, and overall, the, the mental health, the physical health deterioration that is also suffered while trying to maintain all this and some support that can be offered to these women for that as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. Um, Like you said, it's really multifaceted. So thinking about, as you mentioned, both that, you know, the physical stress, mental, emotional as well, um, and thinking about the longer term impact. So not just the impact immediate, you know, from you know, immediate and ongoing in the present, but also for many years to come, right? What are the impacts of women being out of the workplace? Or even just what are the impacts of you know being both the mom and the teacher and you know, household manager and everything else that moms do, right? What is this gonna look like over time?
1: Right. I mean, because there there is this general expectation that I think we we know exists right that, that women tend to sacrifice their careers mm-hmm. um in the name of their families already right because of patriarchy societal expectations you know whatever um this is obviously exasperated i mean i there was an article that came out i don't even know how long ago and it, it was the most ridiculous thing not to judge someone else's choices but you know there was a a woman who's married and she ran a business and she also been i think her husband I don't I can't recall if he was working or not. I believe he might have been staying at home with the children. But she ultimately had to make the decision to shut down her business and employed other folks mm-hmm. to care for for the home, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm not knocking her decision um uh, to, to take care of her family, obviously, but those, those choices, right? Those are choices that, that sort of black, white dichotomy, you gotta choose, choose one or the other, normally fall to women. Mm-hmm. Um and then we already have the barriers in the workplace that exist already to us advancing, succeeding. Now we're having to completely leave leave the workforce, and then the barriers to re-entry If you do want to go back, right? Is now I got to explain there was a pandemic and all that, but also like I've, I've lost out on this valuable time where these other people were able to advance and, and you know move in their career. I've left the workforce.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. That forced time, you know, out of. Um, the workforce and those penalties, right? We know the motherhood penalties are very real. Even you know when there's not a pandemic, but obviously, like all other social justice issues um, or social problems,
1: really being compounded by the effects of coronavirus as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think employers have to be intentional um, about one acknowledging that this this is a framework in which. You know we exist, and and finding ways to um, balance those issues, be aware of those issues, and make sure that they are creating opportunities and and um, creating a work environment to the best that they can, to, uh, that meets their business needs, um, that will allow women the opportunity to to continue to work, moms continue to work, and and I will say uh, because you know inclusivity is important, is you know not not all not all households are are a mom and a dad, or two, be two moms, two dads, whatever. Whoever, typically, there's going to be one person that becomes responsible mm-hmm. for for the the caregiving of the family, um, and we need to account for that, and and it, and it benefits everyone, right? Um, society benefits from that.
0: Yes, absolutely. Do you think, or are there any sorts of laws or or policies that you see maybe in the future that will address this specifically given, you know, the effects of the pandemic on employment? That you think will, uh, the, the role of women in the workforce? Right. The role of women in the workforce or even thinking about some sort of legislation or policies that will prohibit um, kind of some of this discrimination that's obviously going to happen as people are attempting to return, you know, back into the workforce.
1: So I, I can't say off the top of my head of, of any legislation that I know is pending. I, I think a lot of it will be uh, a focus on enforcing the laws that that we already have. I I certainly expect that there will be, you know, sex discrimination lawsuits under Title VII. We have things like the Pregnancy Discrimination Act already, the Equal Pay Act, Um, but enforcement of those laws um, and uh, will will be key, um, I think, particularly moving out of the pandemic. I mean, I've already seen a a, a, there's an uptick in cases, obviously, of disability discrimination um, Mm -hmm. that I've seen quite a bit of coming you know, currently, but I certainly expect there to be an uptick in in um, gender discrimination, equal pay act cases, and, and those, and and then and through those cases, that's an opportunity to um, evolve the law. Right? It, what what are we looking at? What what establishes a case? Um, you know, that based on a fact, fact specific inquiry of of you know, I guess to evolve the case law in that area. Uh, mm-hmm. to start.
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, well, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Ashley Satterfield, attorney and the chief legal and administrative officer for the Reeves Law Firm. And this morning we have been talking about, you know, this really big but also important topic around social justice and the law, and we've spent a lot of time talking about different um, aspects of employment discrimination. Um, also, thinking about the impacts of, you know, obviously coronavirus on employment, particularly um, for women and even more specifically um, for moms. Uh, but we know another kind of big area of social justice in the law is around um, kind of these issues of both immigration um, and citizenship, I think is one really big area that we are seeing resurface recently, um, but also under this bigger umbrella of um, hate crimes um, or racism within um, crime, whether through we see through police brutality, but also through rising hate crimes as it applies to Asian Americans and coronavirus as well. And so actually, I'm wondering, you know, as we're thinking about the possibilities for the law to really advance social justice. I think one question that people often have is that it seems like it takes a really long time for the laws to really, I guess, make the big changes that people are really hoping for. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could talk more about like what you know, what can we do as individuals, but also what can we do within the legal system um, to kind of advance us towards a more socially just society?
1: That's a good question. Um, So I would say on the front end, I think we have to amplify, amplify, amplify these issues as much as possible, Mm -hmm. um, so that they are on the front of of everyone's mind. And, um, you know, I would say, then the media obviously plays a a major role in that and but finding a way to amplify them in a way that is also not uh traumatizing to the people that experience it on on a regular basis i I don't i don't mean to suggest uh you know trauma porn you know people Mm -hmm. just are looking at these bodies and um but i think you need to see it it needs to be in front of your mind as much as possible to get people enraged to get people to care i mean when we think about where we were I mean, police brutality has been going on forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the creation of the police was in fact for that purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, But we look back at at Ferguson, Missouri and and Mike Brown. Mm -hmm. And I remember exactly where I was in Memphis in my bed when that was all occurring. And it was, you know, there were all these live streams Mm -hmm. um, at the time. I mean, even social media looked completely different then. Um, but it was, it was, it was the live streams you, you were seeing what was going on in real time that I think really made the difference in igniting people to move in, in a way that, um, hasn't seemed to, to lose much steam since. We yep. have to mobilize, um, and not, like I said, not just show it, but then obviously people can have to mobilize, um, and create the legislation that we want and then, not just create it, but put some pressure on these folks in Congress who don't seem to react the way we want them to. Um, so I think that that's obviously a starting point. And then, you know, I think from the, the law side, part of that is is still creating the legislation that we want, um, getting involved in local politics. I mean, I, I'm not, no, I'll say I'm not involved in politics, uh, but I think that that is incredibly important. Um, at a local level impacting what's going on where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, starting there will, will have the probably the greatest impact on your day to day and your experiences and then you know expand from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those would be some of the, the basic suggestions that I, I would have, uh, but I can expand on, on anything else you want me to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it is, you know, uh, definitely a multi-pronged approach um, where there is something for everyone to do that is very much tied into kind of your own um, expertise or talents or particular passions, right? So not everyone's involvement when we think about social justice is going to look the same, uh, but that there is something that each of us can do. Um, And I actually would like to know if you could go a little bit more in depth about even just kind of breaking down for people, like what is that legal process when we're talking about legislation or we're talking about, you know, creation of um, new laws or even advancing or building out the precedence of, you know, of former um, cases, like what does that process even look like for people who really aren't familiar, you know, with, the, with really that whole process?
1: Okay, so I'll speak, Particularly about um, the legal process and, mm-hmm. and lawsuits and being under precedent, and this this is how I view it, right? Is is on a simple basis? I'll say this: something that, that what people can do on at the most basic level. If you feel like, and I guess I want to be careful saying this, but if you feel like you were discriminated against, you know, in the workplace or so if something happened, is is one consult a lawyer and see if there is a claim there um, and then pursue it, right? I mean, there are so, I find so so many of the lawsuits that are probably the most actionable don't get brought because Mm -hmm. people are disillusioned with the legal system. Um, They don't wanna go through the process. They don't know that they have a claim. Um, But if we don't, if lawyers never hear about the claim to pursue it, we can't do anything. And, and we want we want to get like the, the good cases, the cases that, that we know we can establish like this this was wrong, you know this violated this law and, and we can build it that's what we need. we need to, we need to get those cases to, to move things along. So that's that's sort of a, just a basic thing for any regular person is I would say don't don't be afraid to consult an attorney uh, and, and pursue a wrongdoing if, if it exists. Um, that's helpful. Um, I think also on that front, it's about being thoughtful and creative and strategic. I know I've said that before, but about um, bringing the right case, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think, you know, sort of goes to, I guess what I said before is about, um, you know, whatever the issue is we're trying to address, you obviously you need the right plaintiff, you need the right person to bring it, the right facts, um, the right team to to bring the case that will make the change. Um, and I'm speaking very generally because it, it just, it varies so much, but I think, I think like, so like we have the NAACP Legal Defense Defined that does amazing work and lots of different organizations across the country that do that. But it's about like, what, what are the issues we want to tackle? And how do we craft? The right case. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, there are some cases um, right now that, that, you know, I'm working on with, with, with the team of lawyers and team people to develop that we think will attack some issues of inequality. Mm-hmm. And and we spend in the beginning stages spending what we have to be a hundred steps ahead of, of the defense always as a plaintiff's attorney, but how do we craft the right lawsuit, right? So if we think that you know, uh, discrimination is occurring in this area from the get-go, what do we need to prove it? And, and how, how is it gonna be analyzed and how do we need to shift the current analysis on its head um, from the get-go? What experts do we need, what, what, you know, what do we need to establish from, from the beginning to give ourselves the best chance? So we can frame the lawsuit the best way possible um, within the existing precedent to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but that takes a lot of time and effort and, and intentionality um, to do um, and, and a lot of focus. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it was making me think a friend of mine actually did um, file a, a discrimination lawsuit. Um, and I was just thinking one, like just about her courage and even like kind of pursuing that claim. Um, and it took you know her case was like maybe it took over a year right and so that's a lot of it's a long process it's scary <laughs> uh but i was really so proud of her because she was experiencing discrimination you know it wasn't in her mind right there was actual evidence right there's things that you know she had records of but i think for a lot of people you know as you mentioned they're not sure like if they even have a claim or if it's you know like where to go or what to do, like what the process is, even how to get it started, and then there's those very real impacts on you know your livelihood if you decide to pursue that, right? Um, and so I think it does take you know a lot of courage and also you know finding that right legal team as well that's
1: really going to support you and be able to like follow your case through. Absolutely, and I, I will say this is you know one thing I tell people all the time, and it's true is is it can be scary to name what's happening to you, right? And so, uh, you know, a major barrier, like in, in the instance of retaliation cases in, in the employment discrimination field, um, in order to establish a retaliation case, one of the things that you have to do is engage in protected activity. And protected activity is typically defined as, you know, I'm gonna say I was, I believe that I was being discriminated against because of X, Y, C, race, gender, disability, whatever that that is. And then you know you engage in that protected activity. Your employer retaliates against you. You may be able to establish a claim. But the key part is you have to name. You have to name that wrongdoing. So it can't just be oh well you know I thought you know I I'm being mistreated. No, I'm being mistreated. I I believe I'm being mistreated because of my race or because of my gender. That's a we're taught not to do that. I mean we're taught that that's inappropriate. We're taught to to be nice about it. Um, But if you but if you are going to to want to bring a retaliation claim, if you retaliate against you, have to name that, and that that's a you know a a built-in barrier to to bringing those kinds of claims. Is most time people a lot of times people are they're afraid to say that. They yeah. they know it to be true. They might dance around it, but no people don't like to say, "Hey, you're treating me this way because I'm black, and I know it." Mm-hmm. But yeah. we we got to name those things so that we can attack those things. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's so important to be able to put a language to it to name it, like you said, so that something can change. But that is a really big step and a scary step, because then it also means a lot of other things are true, right? Like, there's one way that we can kind of feel like we're like psychologically protecting ourselves if we don't name what it is. Uh, but once we actually name like I'm being discriminated because or I think it's because of, you know, my race or my gender or sexuality or, or whatever it is, like that puts a really real framework around what's happening. And that can be a bit, that can be very scary to really say, like, wow, this is in fact happening. Um and now what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for me? But also what might it mean for, you know, my coworkers as well.
1: Right. Right. I know. I mean, it, it, it's it's scary. It, it shouldn't be. Right. But it is. And we know it is. Um, but it's important. And I just I tell people all the time is 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 if you feel like it's happening, you got to say it. And, and you know, there may be there may be there shouldn't be consequences under the law. There should not be consequences for you saying that. And, and you can establish a claim. But um, you got to say it. And and, and also that and that gives them notice to do something about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely,
0: um, and I think that's so important, right? To give people to name it, and then to give people opportunity to do something about it, um, and that's how you know that is how change happens.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So that I mean that that's a, a small scale thing, but I I I'd like to to, to say that often because I think it, it gets missed, and it's really important um, for people who. in situations and trying to figure out you know how to exercise their rights what what to do how do they navigate that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it can be so tricky right we don't really know what to you know like what steps to take um so i think it was so great that you even kind of like broke down some of just those very kind of basic right initial steps of what to do when you know something is happening right and in this case, thinking about maybe the workplace in particular, but like, you know, what you should actually even do if you feel that you're being discriminated against.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Well, Ashley, we are winding down on our time together this morning. So I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to leave our listeners with kind of some final thoughts, because I know we've covered a lot of ground today. So if there was kind of like one kind of final thing that you would like to leave our listeners with, what would that be?
1: Wow. (laughs) Um, Stay strong and keep pushing and give yourself grace. Mm -hmm. I would say that more than anything. I mean, I think everyone is, is feeling the, the pandemic fanti- fatigue, And, you know, we've been living through lots of craziness over the last year plus, and uh, give yourself grace. Don't give up. Keep pushing. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you again to
0: Ashley Satterfield for joining us this morning as we talked about social justice and the law. I think it's so important for us to really consider how we can use the law and the legal system to advance, you know, a socially just society. And there is space for all of us to get involved in that cause. And so for today's positive note, I want to leave you with a quote um, that says, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are are. So I think we all have a duty to really look at the circumstances, the situations, and the social problems uh, that are happening around us. And even if we aren't directly affected, um, we still have the opportunity to get involved and to become outraged, right? Because we do desire justice for everyone. and justice, you know, cannot be for just one side alone, but must be for us all. Well, thank you again for joining us this morning on WYXR 91.7 FM. Join me back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. And remember, you can always catch up on episodes from past shows on wyxr.org.